Welcome to episode 11 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 22, Aram's Inlet, March 4, 2305. Casey was waiting for him aboard when Jimmy managed to drag himself down to the dock. They'd been fishing a week and the accumulated exhaustion had not yet been supplanted by the automatic systems in his brain. The stresses of trying to figure out what was going on with the company, what he was going to do about it, and how he might stop it on top of fishing 12 and 14 hour days was beginning to stack up on him. Casey grinned at him. Are we keeping you up? He chuckled. No, I'm just grumpy because I haven't had my coffee. She reached down behind the rail and pulled up a hot cup of coffee as if from a top hat, complete with cutesy curtsy and a freehand flourish. Ta-da! Tired and groggy as he was, Jimmy chuckled. So how are we doing? He asked her, stepping carefully aboard and taking the cup gratefully. He settled his haunches on the gunwale to listen carefully to her answer. Good, she said. The Lennons have been real good for early on. That last bag yesterday was a monster. He nodded and snorted in appreciation. That was a lot of fish. It was close to the landing quarter for the day, Casey said. You're kidding, he exclaimed, surprised. You forget that it's early in the season and the stocks are higher in the spring. The schools haven't been broken up by fishing, she said. True, he agreed, and in raw numbers, the landing quarters aren't really that much higher than last year. It's Casey's turn to nod. Most years we get landings in the bank, as it were, above average early and tapering off as the season goes on. We're still short by 3% on the day, though, and 5 on the week. Jimmy sighed. With the end of the quarter coming at the end of the month, and only one month's landings in, it's going to be hell in the financial markets. Out along the pier, the other boats were firing up engines, and some were even getting underway. Jimmy heaved himself up from the gunwale. I suppose we should at least warm up the engines. He headed back to the wheelhouse in case he followed. Reaching in, he checked the telegraph and made sure the boat wasn't in gear before he pressed the igniters, and the engine coughed into life. They spluttered a couple of times and then fell into an easy idle. If Tony would get here, we could get underway, Jimmy grumbled. Movement up on Keyside caught Jimmy's attention then, and he looked up just in time to see Tony come shambling up the pier. Is he drunk? Casey asked. Jimmy shrugged and went out to help his friend get aboard. No, damn you, I'm not drunk, Tony said, exhausted. I was up almost all night tracking through financials. Is there coffee? Jimmy grabbed his arm as he almost fell. He took the opportunity to smell Tony's breath, but as nearly as he could tell, Tony was telling the truth. He looked a lot worse than exhausted, but Jimmy just shrugged. You go lay down, Tony. We've got a few hours before we need you on deck, he said. Tony nodded. Figured. Thanks. He shambled off to the forecastle and practically fell down the ladder. Casey looked at Jimmy, and Jimmy shrugged back. Beats me, he told her. I'm exhausted, too. But I haven't been staying up nights trying to unravel this. He sighed. Come on, let's get underway. I have a mind to try the eastern end of Old Man's Bank today. She smiled. That'll give him a little extra sleep. Yeah, this end doesn't get fished much early in the season, and sometimes pay to make three shorter haulbacks out there. We'll get back late, she noted. What, you got a hot date? He asked with a grin. She snickered. Nothing a fresh set of batteries can't fix. Let's go fishing. He barked a loud guffaw at her rather off-color joke and went chuckling back to the wheelhouse while she singled up and prepared to cast off. In just a couple of ticks, they were cruising slowly out to the inner harbor markers and getting ready to enter the channel. Casey took their cups down and refilled them in the galley while he was getting lined up. How's he doing? Jimmy asked when she got back. Never twitched, she said. He's drugged, 
drunk or just totally played? I've seen him drunk, Jimmy said. He's not drunk. He could be exhausted if he hasn't been sleeping. He didn't rule out drugged, Casey observed, settling on her stool and sipping her coffee. No, Jimmy sighed, I didn't. It's not like him, and I've known him for Stanyers, but I don't think it's anything that simple exhaustion couldn't explain. It looks like stim crash to me, she said quietly. Yeah, me too, Jimmy admitted. Stim was a readily available drug that some people took to keep going. It worked fine with relatively few damaging side effects until it wore off. It wasn't that it removed the need for sleep, rather it just postponed it. Its users tend to crash, hard, not unlike they just witnessed with Tony. The wheelhouse was warm, and they slipped gently through the icy cold water of the channel. Casey fired up the electronics and let them warm up on standby for a few ticks, before bringing them up fully. About the time they cleared the outer marker, they were ready for the course plot, and Jimmy leaned into the nav plotter to point out a particular spot on the display. There? Casey asked, surprise in her voice. What, you been there? He asked her curiously. She shook her head. No, it's just, that's a spike. Can we get out of the top of that? Jimmy grinned. It's bigger than it looks, and the deep water all around it is in the Nanking upwelling. She blinked. He nodded. Yep, it brings up all those nutrients from the deep down, which nourishes all the little fishies, which in turn feeds all the bigger fishies. How'd you learn that? Well, it's the old man's bank, he said simply. Yeah, I know the name, but you say it like it's significant. It's named after the old man. Comprehension dawned then. Your old man, she exclaimed. Jimmy smiled. Well, yeah. He really opened up this whole area here, collected the first soundings, he used the satellites to find and map the fishing grounds from down by Cheapskate all the way past Callum's Cove. I thought it was just because of some generic old man, Casey mused. I didn't realize it was a particular one. Well, he was a particular character. I'm surprised he doesn't have more named for him, he added ruefully. How long has he been gone, she asked, punching in the course of corrections as she talked. Oh, gods, I think it's been close to twenty standards now, Jimmy said. But he's coming back. Coming back, Casey asked incredulously. How can you say that? Well, I got a message from him. Casey stopped and looked long and hard at Jimmy. You got a message from him? Jimmy shrugged. Yeah, why not? Don't you get messages from your father? She shook her head. Uh-uh. You're joking, right? No, why? I get messages from my father three or four times a stanier. Not me, Casey said adamantly. Why not? Don't you get along? Jimmy asked, too curious to be polite. Jimmy, my father is dead. Oh. Jimmy felt like an idiot. I'm so sorry, hon. I didn't know. It's okay, she said. He's been gone quite a few stanniers now. Not as long as yours, but long enough. Jimmy was tracking slowly, but finally realized why the conversation was going a little off course. Um, Casey? My father's not dead. She burst out laughing. Oh, thank the gods. Jimmy started laughing, too. When I said gone, it was since he left St. Cloud. Well, the way you were talking about him, I thought he'd passed away and they'd named the bank after him. Casey was giggling almost uncontrollably. You have no idea how glad I am to hear that he's still with us. I can imagine that's a lot better than my getting messages from the great beyond, he chuckled. She rolled her eyes. You have no idea. They rode along through the cold, dark night. Every so often, one or the other would chuckle. Finally, Jimmy said, he is coming back. The old man, Casey asked. Yeah, Jimmy said. Her laugh was infectious, and Jimmy laughed along with her. 
It was just after sunrise when they ran up on the spike. It really wasn't a spike. Just in comparison to the other submarine mounts, it was much smaller, and on the large-scale views it looked like nothing but a point on the screen. In actuality, it was close to five kilometers long and three or four wide. At the dead slow speed of the trawl, there was plenty of room for a boat or two to work the top of the underwater peak. You want to wake up Tony? Jimmy asked. Casey wrinkled her nose while she thought about it. No, let him sleep. I can get the net over the side by myself, I think. Jimmy just nodded and Casey went out to release the safeties and tie-downs. Jimmy stepped out of the wheelhouse to unlatch the after gantry himself and then notched the throttles up to get a little more steerage way on the boat. Casey's delicate touch on the winch soon had the heavy net up and over the side. Jimmy picked up the throttle a bit more while she let the cable spool out. How much? she called. He checked the bottom finder and called back, Three hundred! She waved her understanding and went back to reading her cable gauge, keeping the line snug, but still paying out smoothly. Jimmy kept the boat curling on a wide turn and a steady pace, until finally she slapped the cable locks closed to stop the big drum from spinning and deftly locked down the safeties before hooking the forward cable over the after gantry, so both lines were up and clear of the heavy prop spinning under the stern. They trailed out and down to disappear under the water, about twenty meters back from the stern. Jimmy straightened out his course and began dragging the net along the top of the plateau underneath them, being careful to turn in large arcs to keep the net over the relatively shallow area of the seamount, even when the boat itself was out over much deeper water. Casey came back to the wheelhouse, dusting her work gloves together, and stepped in out of the cold wind. Piece of cake, she said. Nicely done, Jimmy said. You want some coffee, Skip, she asked. After that, I could use a hot drink. Oh, yeah, that'd be good, he nodded. Thanks. Be right back, then, she said, and disappeared into the forecastle. Five ticks later, she was back with steaming mugs, and they settled down to drag. Outside, the wind was calm enough, and the sun was out, but the air was still very cold, barely five centigrade. They dragged quietly and sipped coffee. Every so often, Jimmy would look over and see Casey swaying on the chair, the sun beating in on her, warming her, and making her very drowsy with the steady drone of the engine beneath her feet. Why don't you take a nap, Casey, he suggested. Oh, I'd like to, but I don't want to disturb Tony. He's sprawled everywhere down there. Smiling at the unspoken message, Jimmy nodded back over his shoulder to the chart room behind the wheelhouse. There's a bunk in there. Go lay down for a bit. Close the door if you like. He smiled encouragingly. A yawn caught her sideways, and she laughed at herself. Okay, you talked me into it. She slipped back into the chart room, slid off her boots, and curled up in the bunk in her parka. In moments, she was asleep, and Jimmy felt a peacefulness settle across the boat. He turned to the fish finder and adjusted his course. They were running through some very big schools, and he figured they'd do well with three short hauls. He checked the chrono and marked the time he wanted to haul back, then settled into his own chair and slipped into his fishing trance, watching the water, listening to the engine, and keeping an eye on the fish finder and satellite scans. He woke Casey about ten ticks before he wanted to start his haul back, which gave her a chance to wake up, use the head, and get her boots back on before waking Tony for the work that was to come. From then on, the day was going to get a lot harder for everybody. When Tony clambered on deck, he looked pretty much like normal Tony and gave Jimmy a smile and a wave as he made his way to his station on the winch. Casey gave the high sign and Jimmy knocked the throttles back as she took up the slack with the winches. Slowly and steadily, the heavy net surged up from the deep until it was alongside the boat and Jimmy took the engine out of gear so it wouldn't spin the propeller and suck the loose net back under the boat. Casey and Tony locked the doors to the gantries and began to hoist the heavy net up but the net didn't lift right away, and the boat began to heel over as the winches tightened up the lines running up and over the hoist boom. 
Tony got an alarmed look on his face, but Casey had a fierce grin and spoke some calming words that Jimmy couldn't catch. Tony stepped back a bit just as the delicate balance between net and boat shifted to the boat side, when the bag of fish swung ponderously up, over the side, and onto the deck. Casey didn't try to get a lot of finesse in the crane work, just released the big bag to flop a bit and shouted for Tony to release the binding line at the bottom of the bag. When he did, he was practically knocked down by the quantity of fish that slathered across the deck, some of them still flipping and slapping. Even in the wheelhouse and over the engines, Jimmy heard Casey's whoop of celebration as she lifted the bag up with the hoist to make sure all the fish fell out. She shuffled through the catch to help Tony secure the release line once more, and when it was all secure, swung the empty bag back over the side. In moments, it was trailing back out, the heavy doors splashing into the sea, and the whole thing sinking behind the boat once more. It took them a while to find the bunker cover so the catch could be stowed, and they had to be careful to push enough of the catch back to be able to open the hatch without having everything slip down into the holes without being sorted. Eventually they did, and the silvery mass started flowing into the darkness of the hold. The catch was so large that Jimmy figured they'd just about get it sorted and stowed by the time it was ready to haul back again. He grinned and was looking back over his shoulder when he heard Casey's shout and a kind of yip that had to have been Tony. He snapped his head back around in time to see Tony falling backwards into the fish and something purplish attached to the back of his glove. Casey was diving across the catch, her own hand outstretched, and she batted the purple thing away. Jimmy's heart stopped beating. Or maybe it was time that stopped, as the innocuous-looking purple fish flipped end over end through the air and over the side. Jimmy was half out of the wheelhouse before he realized he had no boots on and that his deck shoes were no match for the catch that was still on the deck. Did it get him? Jimmy yelled. Casey had Tony's glove off and was looking at his hand carefully, holding it this way and that. Tony looked very scared and very confused and he kept trying to say, what was that? But all he could get out was, wah, 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 wah. Satisfied, Casey picked the glove up carefully between thumb and forefinger and cast it into a bucket near the winches. He's okay, I think, she hollered back to Jimmy. Jimmy released a breath he didn't know he was holding. Through the windscreen, he saw Casey running her eyes across the surface of the catch while she explained that the innocuous little purple fish was a box fish, so-called because even the smallest bite from it and you went home in a box. It didn't have to be much. The fish produced a neurotoxin on its skin which caused a near-immediate shutdown of most autonomic nerve functions in humans if it were introduced into the bloodstream. Even skin contact could cause a cascade of nerve function failure. The few people who survived it said it felt like they were being burned alive from the inside out. Everybody knew of the little fish. They were relatively rare, but they did turn up occasionally. Kids from a very early age were taught to look for them as they sorted the catch. A quick scoop with a plastic bucket and the box fish was back over the side, where it inevitably swam back to the deeps. But Tony had never been told because Tony hadn't ever been a kid on a boat. He'd never heard of boxfish. They really were quite easily spotted in the catch, and nobody had died from a boxfish bite in over five stanniers. There were a few more instances of neurotoxin poisoning, but even those were rare. Tony's face paled as Casey explained how near he'd come to death, and he swayed a bit uncertainly before Casey put a hand out to steady him. She asked him a question, and he nodded a bit tentatively, but proceeded to get back to sorting the catch. Casey looked up to nod to Jimmy, who was standing helplessly in the wheelhouse, watching it all unfold on his deck. 
By the time the catch was carefully sorted and stowed, nearly three stands had passed, and it was time to haul back again. Jimmy had Tony and Casey grab a quick sandwich and coffee before they started the next haul back. Judging from the way the boat was handling with the one large bag of fish aboard, Jimmy was pretty sure he was going to be calling it an early day and returning to port with his fish bunkers full. When they got the net up and saw it was even bigger than the first, he just set the autopilot and had the boat run back toward the inlet while he helped to sort the catch. It was a huge load, and the seahorse rode low in the water, her massive bows shouldering the seas aside as she chugged slowly, slowly back to port. When they got the last fish stowed, Jimmy went back to the wheelhouse and knocked the throttles up a bit. She wasn't going to win any speed records riding this low in the water, but they were ahead of the schedule that Jimmy had set for himself for the day, and they had a full load of fish to show for their efforts. Tony and Casey joined him in the wheelhouse for the ride home. Tony was still looking a little pale, and Casey kept looking at him out of the corner of her eye as if she expected him to keel over at any moment. They rode that way, keeping an uneasy silence, all the way back to the inlet. Chapter 23, Calum's Cove, March 8, 2305. Rachel sat in the warm kitchen with a nice pot of chicken soup burbling on the stove and the spring sun shining in the window. The winds were too high for the boats to fish, so she enjoyed an unexpected holiday. Her mug of tea sat by her left hand, forgotten, and the screen in front of her scrolled unseen. Fishing was good for being in the moment. There were hours to sit, sure, the long ride out, waiting out that first set. Often those hours were filled with sleep or quiet conversation with shipmates and not really conducive to introspection. Most of the hours at sea were filled with being at sea. The water, the wind, the boat, the fish. It was consuming. The land was far away, often only a smudge on the horizon, distant in more than just geography. Sitting in her kitchen with the warm sun, the comfortable smells, and her face against the screen was usually as immersive as being underway, but her mind kept straying to her husband and her son and the odd facility known as the shaman's gift. When she'd first met Richard, it was his eyes that had captured her. It didn't hurt that he was easy to look at as well, but his beautiful green eyes had tangled her heart. It was a bit of shock when she realized, really understood, that he would be a shaman. The son of the shaman became a shaman. She smiled softly, remembering Benjamin Krug. He'd seemed older than his years, and perhaps he had been. His face was wrinkled from smiling into the winds and the sun. His eyes were dark, a brown or a deep blue. Rachel never had been sure. But they had a twinkle of amusement that danced there regardless of what he was doing. He had a way about him that set you immediately at ease, and at the same time made you want to be, for lack of a better term, better. His deep voice rang out when he blessed the fleet. They even heard it out on the boats as they passed in parade. The joke was you could hear him all the way to the inlet. His quiet confidence in you could urge you to find things inside yourself when he sat you down to talk about your future. He was a fixture in the village as long as Rachel could remember, and Richard was often tagging along at his side. Richard had been a handsome lad, and several of the village girls had set their caps in his direction. Rachel remembered him as being so serious. The son of a shaman would become the shaman, and he took the role and responsibilities very seriously. It was the season she broke her arm that Richard caught her in his eyes. She'd been twenty stan years old and the new maid on the Lady of the Bay. It was a freak accident at the end of the season, 
She'd step wrong on the pier of all the foolish things, and the heel of her rubber boot had skidded just enough that she fell. She tried to save herself from slamming into the stone pier and only succeeded in snapping her ulna against a dock cleat. The local med clinic took care of it, but she was out of commission and missed the last two weeks of the season. The quick knit took care of the break, and after a couple of days of feeling like an idiot, she'd come to grips with both the incessant itching of the knitting bone and the feelings of idiocy. She took to having breakfast at the diner, back when it was Kathy's Cafe, she remembered, and visiting with the regulars. That was when she got caught by Richard and came to know his father as more than just a village shaman. Benjamin would come into the coffee shop while she was there and talk to her. At first it was about her broken arm, but later about her fishing. The conversations were by themselves nothing special. It was a small town, after all, and the coffee shop was the normal morning gather, much as the pub was in the evening. It was during one of those morning chats when Richard was with him that she first noticed the deep green of Richard's eyes and the soft smile when he looked at her. It wasn't exactly love at first sight. She'd known Richard all her life. It was the first time she'd really seen him as something other than the shaman's son. She flushed remembering the feeling. It wasn't like she was some wallflower virgin at the time. Living in a small town with a healthy population of growing males and females provided plenty of opportunities. Transient staffers provided exotic enticements, and even Bobby Rigg had learned that being sweet yielded better rewards than being a bossy pants. She giggled a little at that particular memory. It wasn't Sin City, but then few places with so many adults watching after so few children were. Still, when Richard smiled, she got all cliched and overwhelmed with what she thought of as the gushy stuff from the endless stream of what her mother called trashy novels. Her mother would know they were trashy, of course, because Rachel got them after her mother was done with them. They started walking about the village, she and Richard, and soon the gossip had them linked, even before they admitted it to themselves. By the time her arm was fully healed, the winter had closed in, and Richard and Rachel were a couple. That was about the time she got invited to the shaman's cottage for the first time. She looked up from her screen and cast her eyes across the sturdy kitchen. It hadn't changed that much from the first time she'd seen it. There were a few more splashes of color, perhaps, and the data terminal moved in with her when she came. The appliances and fixtures had been replaced with identical units from the Combine's catalog. They fit the space, and they worked very well. Benjamin had always worn an embroidered kind of red wool poncho. It was a heavy woolen thing with a hood. It was unspeakably old and something he'd brought from the eastern reaches when he became the village shaman for Caleb's Cove. It used to hang on the peg behind the door. He'd sat with her in this very kitchen, Richard occupied elsewhere, and they'd had the very conversation that was now returning to her. The son of a shaman is a shaman, he'd said. He'd said it like it were something she needed to be aware of, and of course she was, everybody knew it. The title is usually passed down from father to son, but the fever that took Richard's mother gave me the gift. So sometimes the gift comes to those who don't expect it, and when it does, their sons become shamans as well. This is important for you to know, to understand. His dark eyes had peered at her from beneath the shaggy brows, still with her twinkle of amusement, as if he were telling her a very funny but very subtle story. I understand, she'd said. If I have a son with Richard, he'll become a shaman too. He nodded gently. And are you prepared to be the mother of a shaman? He'd asked, still with a twinkle in his eye. She'd flushed at his implication, and it echoed forward to where she sat at the terminal. Well, we haven't gotten that far, but yes, I suppose if we marry and have children, 
I'll have to be prepared, won't I? She asked with a little grin of her own. He chuckled. Yes, parenthood does appear to be one of the one-way doors. Nobody really understands what's on the other side until they pass through it. And once you go through, you can't come back. Whatever he'd been looking for, he apparently found it, because they ended their conversation soon after, and she hadn't thought of it again until the day of the wedding. After the ceremony, presided over prosaically by the local combine clerk of record, and followed by a massive blowout at Flotsam, the pub that would become the Gurrybutt later, Benjamin had taken Rachel aside and slipped a delicately carved seabird into her hand. Give this to your son, the shaman, he'd said. May he use his gift wisely and find peace. By the end of that winter, Benjamin had gone through that other one-way door to explore what might be waiting for him there. He'd been working in his shop on a crisp January morning and they found him resting peacefully on his chair beside the stove when he didn't come in for lunch. The shop was in order and the fire banked. His twinkling eyes finally closed. From that day forward, Richard had been the village shaman and in the fall, Otto Benjamin Krug had been born. But the transition from fisherman to shaman's wife hadn't been smooth. She looked at the terminal in front of her and remembered that hateful conversation. Me or fishing, Richard had said simply. I understand if you choose fishing. The floor had fallen from under her and the ceiling crashed in in that one horrid moment. How can you ask me that, she replied. Ask me to choose between breathing and eating instead. His beautiful green eyes had a deep sadness in them, but he stuck to his position. Fishing is dangerous. I'd rather lose you now, for sure, than to have to face every day not knowing if you'll come back in. Don't you think you're being rather melodramatic, she'd asked him in exasperation. He shrugged. Perhaps. And I know it's unreasonable of me to ask it, but there it is. Unreasonable was hardly the word. She'd bitten back the ugly retorts then, and there were times even now, especially now, that she'd wished she hadn't. How can you ask this? she asked him. I have to think of the future, Rachel, he said rather stiffly. I don't want our boy to have to grow up without a mother. She'd always considered that to be rather an unfair blow, but it had been the one that kept her from smashing his face and throwing the ring at his feet. In the end, she'd capitulated, and her innate skills got her the job working the net. Rachel blinked the kitchen back into focus. Fifteen staniers melted away like frost on a window. Her eyes strayed to the roughly carved shark sitting on her terminal. Oh, Benjamin. I was an idiot, wasn't I? She said softly. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandus.org/golden. <laughs>